my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Everywhere I go, I'm asked about inflation. It's like when people start a conversation with you uh, just about the weather, right now <laughs> inflation has taken that place. And I'm going to tell you where I think we're headed. And later, T-Mobile, the uncarrier, that was the reputation they delivered on for years that they didn't offer horrendous customer no service like their rivals. And that's why T-Mobile grew so much. But lately, woo, T-Mobile's customer no service is excelling at just that. I'm going to tell you what that means for you as a T-Mobile customer or somebody shopping for cell phone service. So inflation has been bad, ugly the last year. And we've had a lot of people uh, who've been very frustrated with me that I have talked about it in ways that uh, make it seem like it's not a serious deal. And the reality is there are a lot of people in surveys who say that the prices of basics going up significantly has really, really hurt them. Think about the grocery store. Prices on average up 5% over the last year, kind of trending with other things. Housing costs up much more than that. The cost of buying a home up double digits. Cost of rent is up higher than that over the last year. Why, inquiring minds want to know, has rent gone up by a huge amount over the last 12 months? Krista. Oh, gosh. Put me on the spot. Is it because of the housing prices are so expensive that people can't afford, so they're renting more? Well, there is that element. But what was going on in America a year ago? Coronavirus. Right. And, <laughs> and we were in, it's before vaccines, yeah. we were basically where there were all those people who had been unemployed, mm -hmm. people were moving in with relatives, people were sleeping in their cars, whatever. Mm -hmm. They were moving out of where they lived apartment rents had gotten depressed in a lot of the country and people who lived in big urban areas who had jobs where they could work remotely yeah, they moved away they moved away they moved to foreign countries many are still in those foreign countries they moved to uh, rural areas just take what's happened in southern california there's been this huge migration of people who couldn't afford to own a house in the la metro area or get a good-sized apartment in the L.A. metro area, have moved east to the desert. And they're getting much more affordable housing. And many people who bought houses in the desert, they're not moving back to the Los Angeles metro area. They're going to stay. And if their employer calls them back in the office, says, come back in the office or you're done, they're like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to find something I can do remotely. But enough people have gone back back to cities, enough people have gone back to work that the absolute demand for apartments has gone through the roof. And that's why the worst inflation we've seen in most people's wallets has been apartment rents going way up. Um, the energy costs, we saw this huge run up in the cost of gasoline, huge run up in the cost of natural gas. And where do we go from here? Okay. So this is going to get really um, 
little strange for a second because I'm going to talk about something that is very hard for people to grasp, and it's what role a central bank plays in what's happened with inflation. Federal Reserve being freaked out last year pumped money into the economy on overdrive and intended to keep doing that into 23 because they thought that the greatest danger was a depression in the United States and around the world. That's why central banks last year coordinated pumping money into the economy. And I'm not going to get into the tools of how they do that, but the Federal Reserve and other central banks have not as many tools at their disposal when an economy is underperforming. But when an economy is overheated, like ours is right now and some others in the world, there are levers they can pull pretty quickly, and the Federal Reserve is going to start pulling money out of the economy, out of circulation in the various ways they do that, and that will deal with some of the inflation we have, some that is because of the government just pushing too much money out there and people sitting with too much money. Uh, Obviously not everybody. If we've got a lot of people that are struggling, but the overall effect is there's too much money floating out there. The supply chain disruptions piece by piece are getting better. Uh, Not all supply chain disruptions are improving, but they are starting to improve. And we are going to have more baked-in inflation than we've had in years. Uh, If I were to guess, we're looking, our trend line now is looking at something going forward of around 3.5%, which is more than we've had in a long time, but is not truly destructive inflation. Uh, one, look at a couple of things. Natural gas prices that had skyrocketed have come back down, down, down. And there are two reasons for that. One is that as the price went up, more production came online. Capitalists went out and got more supplies. And then the second thing, we got a benefit from Mother Nature, whether it's because of uh, climate change or whatever, Temperatures have generally been warmer in America than they would normally be in the fall, and demand for natural gas fell a lot, and the price is doing so as well. Gasoline has been falling at wholesale. You'll start to see the benefits at retail where the big run-up in gasoline prices, they're going to remain higher than they were, but lower than they've been. And you have a daughter going to college in Boston. I do. And I've been talking about how in the world is she going to handle the cold? And it hasn't been as cold as a normal. No, it hasn't. Yeah, they've really had nothing yet. So she's afraid for the winter. She kind of wants snow now, though. You know, somebody's first winter in the north, as I experienced, you're so excited by the first snow, no, the second snow, the third snow. It's fun until the, the end fifth, of January. Fifth or sixth <laughs> snow, yeah, you're done with it. So uh, with inflation, yeah, I apologize if I was insensitive to you about the price increases that people have experienced. But having, I guess part of it is I'm 
a little numbed by it because I grew up in an era that we were approaching galloping inflation back in the 1970s. And then we went through one of the most severe recessions ever to get that inflation wrung out of the economy because of a guy who is kind of heroic to people who study economics, Paul Volcker. Um, Anyway, this inflation is not that. There are unusual forces at work as a result of the pandemic. And I think that it is going to be something that has caused some pain for people, but we're not headed to an ugly new inflationary cycle. This question is from Ella in New York. I'm a 26-year-old New Zealander living in Brooklyn and working here as an animator on an O-1 visa. I've lived in New York for two years and have a salary of $130,000. I love it here, but it can't be 100% certain on what country I'll settle down in or retire. I opted out of my employer's 401k because they don't match contributions, but I've been thinking about opting in as I recognize the saving benefits. However, this poses issues for internationals like myself who don't know if they'll be here for long-term or retiring, as I understand we get taxed 30% if living overseas when withdrawing. So depending on your country's tax treaty, you may or may not get it back, which seems like a long-term gamble as tax treaties can change. If you were me, would you opt into a Roth 401k or open a mutual or managed fund? I'm after a simple, straightforward solution which allows me to save but remain flexible. I'll be here for another five years at least. Okay, so uh, first of all, your level of sophistication, Ella, about how retirement accounts work in the United States is fantastic and is superior to most native-born American citizens. I I just got to congratulate you so much. Whatever you do, you want it to be a Roth version, uh, particularly in your situation as a foreign national. You want to do the Roth IRA, which you do on your own, and you could do the Roth 401k and increase what you're investing. You need to check, since you're a native of New Zealand, and you may ultimately retire there, you need to know what the tax treaty rules are with New Zealand. If you end up settling somewhere else in the world later in your life, and you become a citizen of that country, this becomes an X factor. You don't know how it's going to play on the tax front where you ultimately would settle. So that is a gamble. But doing the Roth versions put you in a much better position than if you were to do a traditional. And if you can find out from someone back home what the tax treaty privileges and requirements are, for you having money in a retirement account in the United States that is an after-tax account like a Roth IRA or Roth 401k, then you'd be able to make a good decision whether participating would be the right thing to do. And with five more years in the United States, at least seven years total, that's a lot of time in your working life at really good pay rates for you to be able to stash cash for your long-term financial security. This is from Andy in Florida. Will using your towing coverage that's on your auto insurance policy increase your auto insurance rates because it's a claim and they may consider it was an accident that you just didn't file a claim on for damages? All right, Andy, congratulations to you because this is something I've done on TV a few times over the years. It is maddening to me 
Uh, it is a cynical attempt of the auto insurance industry to cheat its policyholders. A number of auto insurers will uh, offer you very, very low-cost um, roadside assistance in competition with AAA or some other third party. And they do it as a trick because many of the insurers will treat a towing as an at-fault claim and kill you in the common insurance industry database that used to be called the Clue Report. It may have a different name now. And when you would try to go shop for someone with someone else for auto insurance, you got that poison pen letter right there that destroys you being able to get good premiums. Now, there may be an insurer here or there who doesn't treat roadside assistance as an at-fault claim, but don't take the chance and never get roadside assistance from your auto insurer unless they, in writing, say that use of that rider will not count against you or be treated as a claim or reported as an at-fault claim. Okay, and this one's from Tony in Connecticut. I'm parked in the parking lot of a Dollar Tree listening to your podcast. Dollar 125 tree? (laughs) I recently got a job with a company in Connecticut that provides work vehicles, and they let me take it home. I do not own a personal vehicle. The company vehicle is fully insured, but do I need a non-owner's insurance policy? And if so, what do you recommend? Yeah, so Tony, uh, again, this is a very sophisticated question you're asking. If you have the good fortune at your job having a company vehicle that you can drive personally and for work, then when you travel or whenever there's a need for you to have a rental vehicle, which can happen over the course of a year, having a non-owner's insurance policy is a great idea. Um, Not every auto insurer issues these, but they are a pretty common and routine policy. The main reason you have it is on the liability side. A lot of the other things you would need, you can protect yourself from damage to a vehicle, that kind of thing, uh, with certain credit cards that provide coverage in the event that auto insurance doesn't cover you, but it's not going to help you on the liability side. And that's why having a non-auto owner's policy is really great to have. And straight ahead, you know there's a phrase that I've used for decades, customer no no service. service. And I want to talk about customer no service coming up. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
There is the funniest, funniest Saturday Night Live skit about the cable monsters. <laughs> Have you seen it? I think I sent it to you. Didn't you I? sent it to yeah. me. Oh man! I love I mean, everybody can identify with what it's like dealing with the cable monsters, and you know, as they get competition. I mean, the reservoir of bad will they're building up is something else. Well, another industry has long had a horrific reputation, and it's the cell phone industry. And the cell phone industry was one that people loved to hate. And surveys going back to the turn of the century forward, people would just hate on their cell phone carrier. Well, there was this guy who was really kind of freaky, Named John Ledger. He was kind of fun, too. Yeah, freaky I liked fun. his cooking show he used to do. <laughs> I and it. he was a corporate refugee. He had been with buttoned-up AT&T for a long time, wearing all the suits, having perfectly coiffed hair and all that. And then he kind of had midlife and uh, went to long hair and uh, burned all his suits and uh, cussed like a sailor on social media and all that. And he's got the cooking show. And he came in to T-Mobile, which was uh, also ran, that was going nowhere, and clean-sheeted, how would you run a business, what he coined the uncarrier, one of the marketing people did, how would you run a business where you just did what people wanted instead of what you wanted them to do? What are the customers asking for? And so he got away with, got rid of the contracts, got rid of corporate mumbo-jumbo, and empowered the customer no-service people to actually fix people's problems and reward them for fixing people's problems with bonuses instead of punishing them because they didn't go to page 44 of the employee manual (laughs) and see that your responsibility always is to infuriate the customer and say no for every possible reason. And he was uh, very belligerent towards AT&T and Verizon, always referred to them as dumb and dumber. And I remember one year when I was doing television at the Consumer Electronics Show, it was then called that, um, he went and crashed an AT&T party going on. And then the bouncers and the police <laughs> threw him out and threatened him with trespassing arrest. I mean, he just, he was a true rebel. Well, he retired, and a really nice guy seems to have gone in as CEO, but he doesn't have that connection to the workers, and bureaucracy is creeping back in. And Bloomberg did a story about all the customer no-service problems at T-Mobile, including that the American Customer Satisfaction Index now rates them as the worst carrier for customer service when they, for years and years and years, had ranked as the best. And T-Mobile, instead of saying, you know what, maybe we really have a problem here, did all that corporate mumbo-jumbo stuff (laughs) and called called it they were having recent challenges. Well, I've been with T-Mobile a long, long time, and as a T-Mobile customer, I've seen the decline in customer no service. And they're doing a lot of uh, the stuff that is poison to any relationship with the consumer. They're doing outsourcing to foreign countries for customer no service from people who are reading from scripts 
and don't know how to do anything and don't have any authority to fix anything. And this is, this is terrible because it means that we had an industry where one player was getting all the growth and all the profit gains because they were following a basic rule. Listen to your customer, treat them right, and then that idiocy of corporate bureaucracy takes over and they lose it. And how many times have we seen this with companies? And so where my mind is now is all the companies rate terribly on customer no service. I mean, they just do. Go wherever the cheapest service is because the networks are similar and the call quality, people really don't call much anymore. The data experiences are well, they can be inconsistent, but you're getting good experiences from people. Just go to the cheapest. And usually it's going to be with either a captive discounter. A captive discounter is one owned by one of the three big brand names, AT&T, Verizon, or T-Mobile. Each of them own their own captive brands. I just read AT&T, which has really messed up cricket, is now putting a new effort into making cricket competitive again, and I'm looking for better deals from AT&T's captive operation, cricket, which has been basically a mismanaged joke. And you see, I just, <laughs> I mean, I just call it like it is. And Verizon, which is going to a tiered strategy, Verizon wants to take more market share by having every layer of price points. So Verizon will remain the most expensive cell phone provider in the country when you go with brand name Verizon. But then they have discounters that are all geared towards different subsets. They have Visible, which is one of the best deals in the marketplace that has no stores, nothing like that. It is Verizon service, but you do it at Visible.com. It's a great, great deal. They are buying the track phone people, so they'll own track phone, they'll own straight talk, they'll be really big into business with Walmart through straight talk, which has always been a kind of a joint venture with Walmart, and now Verizon will own it. And then T-Mobile having their discount, Metro by T-Mobile, and then Walmart Family Mobile. And then you move to another layer which are the deep discounters that are independently owned that buy network capacity from the others and are great for people who don't need unlimited data. Boost, as I mentioned recently on a podcast, has a new plan that's $100 a year for unlimited talk and text and a low amount of data every month, one gig of data. But a, a big percent of cell phone users don't use a gig of data a month. And so the Boost thing would be a great thing for you. And speaking of Boost, Boost is the company building out the fourth cellular network in the United States. And then there is the crazy other thing, which is, remember I said how awful customer no service is with the cable monsters? The cable monsters are building out cable systems where they buy capacity in rural areas from one of the bigs 
and then they use their own internet service backbone customers internet connections to provide cell phone service for customers see this is something you may not know if you're with comcast and you have their xfinity you're paying for internet service with them and you're paying them to be able to come in and grab capacity from you to use for cell phone customers driving by on the street or walking by on the street. I mean, it was really pretty clever and diabolical what the cable companies have been doing. (laughs) Yes, true um, Dr. Evil kind of stuff. So they may be a price competitive alternative for you. The big message here is that being with brand name AT&T, Verizon, or T-Mobile may not be in any way necessary in your life Being with a sub-brand of them or an alternative could save you a substantial amount of money every month and throughout the year. And we do have an awesome cell phone guide on Clark.com that Dallas Cox on our team is constantly looking at and telling you what the latest deals are. So it's a great resource. Not connected to Cox Communications. No. We have a question about customer service from Bruce in Illinois. What's your take on what some companies are doing with so-called customer service? I recently needed assistance while at the airport. The airline is removing their customer service desks and forcing everyone to use their cell phone to connect with the service agent. It really gives me the cold shoulder experience not having a face-to-face agent to assist me. Have you encountered this type of customer no service? Yeah, the airlines are, they're in a bind right now. They are all short of workers because of what happened in the early phase of the pandemic where air travel essentially shut down. So they got a lot of people to take early retirement packages and a lot of people went on long-term leave who have not come back. And also the great resignation, you know, the thing where people have been quitting jobs. A lot of the people who work counters in the airports make amazingly low hourly rates, uh, potentially that you could make substantially more per hour working at a Chick-fil-A as a new employee in a lot of places in the country than you make working at a counter for an airline in an airport. Um, The pay rates have not kept up with the marketplace. So the airlines are like, well, how do we, what do we do with this And so basically they're saying, we're not going to have anybody for you to talk to or make it very painful for you to wait in line to talk to somebody. And you got to pick up the phone and wait to talk to someone, which has not been much of an answer because unfortunately uh, people have had wait times as long as 24, 26 hours waiting to talk to someone at an airline. So what's the most effective strategy if you're in a jam? Post on social media. All the airlines have social media teams trying to protect their reputations. And so you post on social media, short form, don't get into writing a novel. Short form, don't be whiny, but just say the situation. You can throw any humor in, that helps. And then uh, with most airlines, within minutes or under an hour, Someone will contact you from the airline by direct message asking if they can communicate with you and try to solve the problem. 
This is from David in Oregon. My wife just had a prescription filled, and the total cost was $2,400. Fortunately, we had insurance, but still had to pay $800 for a generic prescription. For a generic? For a generic. Are there any suggestions you can give for reducing these costs, such as getting prescriptions filled in Canada or Mexico? So that is the best suggestion. Uh, People are doing this by the millions, and they're being quiet about it. But people who live in border states routinely, if they live at the northern border, they go to Canada to fill their prescriptions. They live at the southern border, they are going to Mexico, but not in the numbers that people cross into Canada. There's uh, better oversight of the prescription drug dispensers and the industry in Canada than there is in Mexico. And with a really expensive drug, with discount flights, you can actually fly up to a border town and cross into Canada or fly into Canada, get the meds, and you'll still save a fortune. The drug companies don't want me saying that, and what they want me to tell you is that they have financial assistance programs that you may or may not be eligible for that the drug companies do as a way of relieving the pressure, that the political pressure coming towards the pharmaceutical companies And they either work through a cooperative industry organization to offer discount programs, or they may operate as a lone ranger with their own discount program. See if you're eligible for any of those programs. Otherwise, I would go to Canada and fill the meds. And also shop around like RX Saver and other pharmacies, right? That's absolutely true to shop that drug, but you're not going to, with a with a drug that's that kind of money, you're almost certainly going to find that it'll be much cheaper in Canada than what it is even as you shop around for a discounter in the U.S. This is from Byron in Kentucky. Clark sets the thermostat to 55 at night for better sleep. Does that same logic apply to all seasons, or is Clark only concerned with better sleep for half of the year? So, Byron, that's not for, although... The best temperature to be at for sleep apparently is 63, 64 degrees, I guess. Um, you're laughing? I do 67. I think that's really cold. Like, my family thinks that's freezing when we're sleeping. That's 55 is in bonkers. That's crazy. Back in the energy crisis in the 70s, uh-huh. we were asked to turn the household temperature down at night to 55 degrees. And uh, I... If I am by myself, I turn the heat off or turn it down to 55 so that I can save money. If my wife is with me, that's not happening. (laughs) And so we've compromised at 67 degrees. That's what we do. It's the temperature we turn the heat down. And in the summer, no, even though we'd sleep better if we ultra-cooled the house, we don't do that because... Well, I'm too cheap. <laughs> so if you didn't get your question answered, or how about you'd like one-on-one advice? Do you know that's something we've offered free for almost 29 years? You can reach a member of the Team Clark Consumer Action Center that's open Monday through Friday, Eastern Time Zone, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And you can talk with a member of Team Clark one-on-one advice 636-49-CLARK.